Welcome back to Ecclesiastes. We've come back to this book of wisdom and uh, how much we need it in these days. You know, Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom for helping God's people live uh, in this unique time, not just now, but, but really in this time of exile, apart from God living in this world. You know, we love to have control in our lives and we love to manage things. And yet we do exist in a world that is unpredictable, that's uncertain. Uh, the evidence I'd provide for you would be COVID-19. Who could have imagined it? Who could have, who could have guessed the changes that it would be bringing to our lives? And yet it does show us the unpredictability, the changing nature of our world, even on a dime. Now, perhaps this causes you to feel a bit anxious. It causes you to feel a bit uncertain. It, it, it feels threatening to you. Well, let me propose that this book has help for us. It has wisdom. Remember now, Ecclesiastes, the passage we're in actually, follows from chapter 7. It's this wisdom for life under the sun. And you know we've heard that verse and that phrase, under the sun, many, many times. What under the sun really means is life in this world. So we're not in Eden. We're not walking with God in the cool today. And we're not in the new heavens and the new earth or the restored Eden. We're living right now in this wilderness. It's in the wilderness that Murphy's Law exists, that, that people that try to live a healthy, consciously healthy life, they get cancer. Uh, people that are in shape, that are runners, they have heart attacks. Heart attacks, And at the same time, the, the cigar smoking, whiskey drinking, eating four eggs a day, they may live to 100. This is the nature of the world in which we live in. And we saw this earlier in chapter 9, in verses 12 and 11 and 12. The preacher says, uh, the race does not go to the swift, and the battle doesn't always go to the strong. Why? Accidents happen. Tragedies occur. Viruses spread. And so the preacher is going to give us a kind of a little instruction on the value of wisdom. He wants to hold wisdom up that God's wisdom is to be of great value for you. And at the same time, he reminds us of the vulnerabilities of wisdom. Listen, we can overlook it. We can forget it. We can despise the wisdom that we have. And then he's going to show us four areas of life where we need this wisdom, how we relate to authorities, how we relate to work, how we speak, and then how we act out our citizenship of this country. He'll give us wisdom in each of those areas. Now, a slight caveat, when you read through the passage, it clearly seems confusing and disorganized. Carol uh, said when she, I had to read it, and Carol, my wife, said, it feels like he's just giving us this caffeine-induced stream of consciousness, just this proverbial wisdom going all over the place. And it is a bit disorganized. I'll try to I'll try to put it in categories for you, but I'm thankful for the wisdom because the scriptures aren't simply teaching us about the nature of heaven and getting to heaven. Uh, the scriptures are teaching us how to live on earth and how to live on earth that we might flourish even in the unpredictability and the changeableness of our lives. He has wisdom for us that I think will serve us well. So let's look first at the value of wisdom. So you're going to find this in chapter 9, 13 through 15. The value of wisdom, the immense value. Look at it with me. He says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. There's that expression. And it seemed great to me. 
There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building a great siege work against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Now, this is a parable. But it's a parable showing us the immense value of wisdom. In very practical ways, he's giving us the value of wisdom So over this great king. So the story is you have this town. It's a small town with few people in it, which would probably mean it's a poor town. And you have this town there situated in the land. And a great king comes with a great army. And he builds great siege works against it. That could be either a ramp going up to the wall where men could go in and, and attack the city. Or maybe even it could indicate these siege works, these towers with catapults that could bring a city like this to its knees in an instant. In other words, with this story, you think the city doesn't have a chance. It's torched. But in the city, there's a poor man. He was poor. It's mentioned twice to emphasize his poverty. He wasn't a man of repute. He wasn't a man high in the governmental structure of the city. He was just a poor man, but he had wisdom. And it was his wisdom that delivered the city. We're not told what he did. We're not told how he outmaneuvered the king. We don't know anything. It's just the focus is on his wisdom. Now, I I would encourage you, if you have time later today, look at 2 Samuel chapter 20. You'll see a story similar to it. Uh, but, but this is a parable teaching us this. Don't underestimate the power of wisdom. Don't overlook it. Don't miss it. Don't devalue it. It may be in a quiet voice, but wisdom is essential for life. There's a strength to godly wisdom for those living under the sun. You see this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We saw it a month ago. He says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in the city. So take a city with one good ruler. That's a strong city. But then you put 10 strong leaders in the city. You think that city's 10 times stronger. But the wisdom to the wise man is actually stronger. So to what degree do you value wisdom? And, and to what degree do you make effort to gain that wisdom? You know, those, um, those getting older... You know, I've been told that it gets harder as you get older. And there are challenges to getting older, uh, but there are benefits such as the gaining of wisdom. If you're older, to what degree have you been seeking to be a person of deep wisdom, of godly wisdom? To what degree do you pursue it? You know, should we not? I mean, the Olympiad goes after the gold. That's the, the whole desire is win the gold medal. Should we not get the valuable wisdom that's afforded to us? You know, if you think back in your life, think back to the foolish decisions that you made. Some of you have made foolish decisions. I have. And I look back and the consequences weren't severe. They weren't significant. And I've probably failed to profit from the foolishness that I exhibited. But there are some things that I've done that were foolish. And I still remember, I still live with the degree of the consequences. I know that many of you are still living with some of the consequences of your foolishness. Wouldn't you love to go back? I mean, wouldn't you love to have turned to somebody? What should I do here? How should I behave? How should I respond? What should my choice be? I mean, to have someone that has the wisdom to know to help guide us through the unpredictability of life is just essential for us. 
I hope you find that in the church. I hope you find Christian brothers and sisters that are able to help guide you with the godly wisdom that they've gained. Now, I want to be, I want to be sure that you don't misunderstand me. So wisdom, as we, as we spoke about previous, uh, wisdom is not the same as knowledge. So when I speak about wisdom, this wisdom that he's speaking, it's skill at living. It's skill at living. That's what wisdom is. It's different than knowledge. Knowledge, uh, wisdom is not, they're cousins, but they're not twins, right? They're similar, but they're not the same. So, So wisdom is not IQ. It's not intellect. It's not education. It's not success. That's not measuring wisdom. You know, knowledge are facts. They're data points. They're important. But wisdom is taking the knowledge and then living it out. So a person can be wise, a person can be knowledgeable, but not wise. So, for example, take some of my old gym teachers. They knew everything that you needed to know about training and conditioning. They tended to be out of shape. They tended to not follow the very things that they were teaching me. You know, that would be a person that has plenty of knowledge, but no wisdom. So you, have, you can have a person with many, many degrees in higher education and be very foolish. Or you could have a person that didn't finish high school and actually has strong and, and deep wisdom. So I think his first point here in 13 to 15 is value wisdom. Seek it. Long for it. Look for wisdom so as to navigate through this life under the sun. But then notice in chapter 9, verse 16, he warns us about the vulnerabilities of wisdom. In other words, wisdom can be overlooked, it can be ignored, it can be forgotten. Look at this in 9.16, he says, But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Hear what he's saying here. It's really interesting. He again is showing us the value of wisdom. It's better than, it's better than, it's better than. But notice those things that can negate the value of wisdom. He he says that it might be despised. His words are not heard. We don't listen to it. We ignore it. He says the words of the wise and quiet are better than the shouting of the fool. And, And yet the shouting of the ruler, we often go with the loudest voice, the most bombastic personality. We can ignore the words said in quiet because he's so dominating in his or her words. Or, or wisdom's better than weapons of war, but one sinner can destroy much good. He's showing us the vulnerability of wisdom that we can ignore it. You see it in the proverb that follows in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So think about it. You have this, this mass of ointment or perfume. Its intent is to smell good. But just a few dead flies get in it and it becomes foul-smelling. It begins to stink. What he's saying is just a wee bit of folly can outweigh wisdom. I mean, it can overpower just a little bit. It, it's, it's really maddening because it's so disproportionate. You have all this perfume and it can be ruined by just a few dead flies. But we have the same expression. I mean, what do we say? Well, just one bad apple. Just one bad apple can spoil the whole, the whole barrel. You know, when my dad was a kid in the 40s, 30s and 40s, when his job, he had an apple tree in the yard, one of his jobs was to turn the apples. 
Every day you go turn the apples. Because if you don't turn the apples, one apple resting against another apple begins to bruise and it begins to ruin the whole of them. And, and so, and, and we know this, don't we? I, I mean, when you think about it, don't you know the person, or maybe it's, maybe it's been you, where you say one thing really bad to a friendship. You know, you have a friendship over the years, but you make one statement. Uh, you, don't, you don't measure your words. You bring a criticism. And it can ruin, just one sentence can almost ruin a lot of years of friendship. Or one breach of trust in a family. One breach of trust. You've had a marriage, you've had relationships with a sibling for years and years, it was okay. But then one breach of trust ruins it. What he's simply saying here is don't underestimate the power of folly. Now, when I speak about folly or foolishness, I'm not talking about, you know, cutting a board poorly or making a bad error in judgment. I'm, I'm talking about something more related to the character of a person. Foolishness in Scripture isn't just making a simple mistake. It, it's more of a rep- a repeated series of behaviors that becomes part of your character. If you look in chapter uh, 10, verse 2, he says, A wise man heart inclines him to the right, and a foolish heart inclines him to the left. Uh, the place at the right in Scripture is always a place of honor and power and strength and righteousness. Uh, a place to the left is usually ineptness and error and foolishness. And so he's saying that a wise man heart, in other words, foolishness is bound up in the heart. It's not simply a random mistake. It's a character issue. It's more profound who we are. And, and a person who is foolish in character, it becomes not, it doesn't remain hidden in your heart. It begins to be displayed outward to people. That's why he says in verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. In other words, you begin to see the foolish ways of people over the years. You see it by the, by the fruit in their lives. So here, after telling us about the value of wisdom in guiding us through the unpredictability of this world, then he just warns us about the vulnerability of wisdom. So really, the lesson for us when we look at that, that section on the vulnerability is don't be the fool. Don't, don't walk as the fool. Don't let it become a character issue for you. You may say, well, well, what makes me go so foolish? Well, there's a number of things that cause us to play the fool. Number one is overconfidence. Uh, we don't need anybody's wisdom. You know, overconfident or, or arrogant people, they don't ask a lot of questions. Uh, they don't walk in a degree of humility where they're seeking wisdom out from other people. They're making decisions about life and taking a job and buying a house and marrying a person. And they're making all these life-altering decisions. They don't ask anybody. Because they think they know it in their head. They think they know what they're doing. Uh, they don't need the wisdom of other people. This leads to foolishness. I mean, think about how pride goes before the fall. It happens all the time. How many times that you made decisions of which you didn't think, you didn't gain any wisdom, you don't gain the wisdom of those who are older than you, perhaps have gone through that, and you make a foolish decision. So not just overconfidence, but also ignorance. You ignore the warning signs. We often step into foolishness because we ignore the signs. So you're driving down the road 10 miles over the speed limit. The sign says caution, slippery when wet. We just ignore those things. We tend to get drawn into the beautiful, the pomp, and the circumstance of life. And we're ignorant of the cost that this decision may bring. Or we forget. 
right now because we forget about the lesson we learned five years ago. Fools tend to repeat the same errors over and over and over again. Or it may be impulsivity. You know, just that that we often make decisions based on impulse. It can be lust for power, lust for money, uh, lust for sexual activity. It, it can be that that impulse, that move. We're not thinking; we're just reacting. That brings us into foolishness all the time. You know, Annie Dillard in her book *The Writing Life* speaks about the male butterfly. The male butterfly will often fly over a female butterfly of the same species, as in vain she flaps her wings to attract his attention, he flies over her and will pursue a cardboard substitute. Because why? It's bigger and it's brighter. It seems better to him. And that's the fool. The fool acts by impulse and not the wisdom gained, either in his life or seeking it from others. So so that's the vulnerability. You know, he shows us the the value of wisdom, and then he warns us of the vulnerability of wisdom. Now what he does is he shifts in chapter 10, verse 4, and he looks at four areas. How do we respond to authorities? How do we handle ourselves at work? How do we handle our speech? How do we handle our responsibilities as citizens? And he wants to give us wisdom in each of these areas. And I would ask you to listen, maybe even go back and listen again. And and at the end of this, just review your life in these areas and give yourself marks on maybe how wise or how foolish are you being in these areas. Okay, first, what does wisdom look like before authorities? Look with me in Chapter 10, verse 4, he says, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. Now, what's he saying here? Well, I think he's talking about leadership. I think he's talking, you know, if you think about our society, um, we have authority structures all over the place. Parents have authority. Teachers have authority. Police have authority. Governmental officials have authority. Bosses have authority. And so in these relational dynamics, uh, the wisdom looks like deference. It looks like, you know, if you make a mistake and the anger of the ruler comes against you, what he says here is be calm, be meek. You know, in other words, if you've done something wrong, parent you know, has a short fuse, boss, flies off the handle. Don't leave, don't bolt, don't resign, don't say, I'm out of here. No, act with calmness and meekness. If you have made a mistake that has raised their anger, then repent of it. Ask for forgiveness. Own it. Apologize for it. See what you can do to make it better and try not to make the same mistake again. So he's talking about if you make a mistake to the authority and the authority reacts with anger to you, keep your place. Don't run and bolt and feel justified. Don't revile when they revile you. Now, let's say it goes the other way. Let's say there is error, as he says, error proceeds from the ruler. Let's say the government, or let's say a parent, or let's say a boss uh, commits an error against you. You know, for example, in, in the example he gives, he says, this evil under the sun is that folly is set in many high places. How many times... In the business world, has someone been given a position of authority that really isn't qualified for it, but they're a friend of the boss or, or they have family relationships with the boss and, and you feel that it's just patently unfair and you're just gone. I'm out of here. Now, it, it, this isn't condoning abuse. It's not, 
saying to ignore what is patently wrong. Uh, but his, his call, the wisdom, looks like calmness, meekness, deference, a, a graciousness, a, a humility in it. So, so, so to what degree do you seek to be wise in your relationships with the authorities? Now, remember, if you have wise leadership in your life, it's easy to follow that. It makes sense. Uh, this is speaking to that challenged area or the faulty leadership. What do you do? Uh, so if you, you don't have to read much in terms of social media or the news media to see that, you know, this country is in an uproar about the social distancing and the stay-at-home orders and how tight the bolts are getting locked down. And I, I would admit that there is a legitimate disagreement between what's right in terms of uh, the degree of threat and the degree of what we should exercise in terms of distancing and locking down certain businesses. I agree that there's an area of disagreement. I was kind of chuckling the other day because I took some personal offense that the ABC stores are considered essential business, but pastoring in the church isn't. So, But either way, the response is the same. Wisdom would call me to be calm, to keep my place, and to react with a degree of deference. Um, am I praying for leaders, according to First Timothy and according to First Peter? Am I asking God? So Carol and I, each night before going to bed, we're praying for the, for the county and for the state and for the federal government. You know, the, the, there is a place for protest. There is a place to lodge complaints. I don't think he's denying that. We just want to do it peaceably. We want to do it graciously. We want to do it with wisdom. Uh, so that's how we react. Even, even though we may find our government at fault, perhaps you're finding the government at fault. Perhaps you're part of the group that's finding the nation at fault for wanting to take these, these stay-at-home orders off too quickly. Either way, we want to remain calm. We want to keep our place. We want to be sure to react with, with grace and charity. Now, if you have authority, if you're in a position of exercising authority, you know, I would ask you, when an employee or somebody under your charge, when they make a mistake, how do you respond? You know, do you respond with graciousness? Do you respond with charity? Or if you make a mistake, you in authority make a mistake in the exercising of your role. Do you repent? Do you own it? You know, because whatever authority you occupy, maybe you're a parent, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a police, maybe you're in the government, uh, maybe it's spiritual. All of our authority has been given to us by God. We are all accountable to God. So we want to exercise our authority, uh, recognizing that we're going to stand before God. And we're account- because all authority has been ordained by God, even what we perceive as poor authority. So th- that's the first area. How do we respond to the authorities? And he says, be calm, uh, be meek, really. Uh, be gentle, be truthful. But be gentle. The second area he gives us is at work. And you find this in verses 8 to 11. He says, he talks about a man who digs a pit and falls into it. And the serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them and splits log is endangered by them. I think what he's saying here is at work. What does wisdom look like at work? Well, wisdom would, of course, look like, you know, a, um, a certain awareness of the downsides. That, that there, when we engage in work, whatever our work may be, there ought to be an assessment of risk. 
so that we can prepare. So the man that digs the pit, presumably he's digging a pit and he's covering it with leaves and a net so that if an animal comes by, he falls in the pit and he gets dinner. But he's got to be careful that he doesn't fall into the pit himself or the one quarrying, the one gathering stones. He's breaking down a wall. Presumably it's a broken wall. It's stones. I want these stones to re, redo my house. And yet in these stones, there are cracks. And in these cracks there are often snakes. And so the wise man thinks, assesses the risk and just prepares for it. I think that's all he's speaking about. Or quarrying rocks or splitting logs that you would be aware of the risks associated with it. So a couple of years back, a tree came down the yard. We had it cut into burnable pieces, but we had to split it. So I rented a log splitter. Brandon, my son-in-law, was with me. And uh, we had gotten down to the two last big logs. I mean, they, they were big. And, and Brandon graciously said, why don't you let me get those two? I think he was giving deference to my age. Um, I thought, no, I'm strong. I'm young. I can do it. And um, so I bent down and I went to pick it up and it was a really big log. I mean, it had to be a thousand pounds. And, and I grabbed, I picked it up. And I got maybe 18 inches off the ground and I heard a pop. Well, the log went down. I went down. I didn't sit right for about six weeks. I, I, I didn't assess age, size of the, size of the, the, uh, the log. I, I, didn't, I didn't assess it wisely and I paid for it. That's what he's, I think he's saying here. But not just to do risk assessment, to do planning. I think he's also speaking about not just to work you know, with greater wisdom, but work smarter. Don't just work harder, but work smarter. You see that when he speaks about the edge of the blade not being sharp, so you have to use more effort for it. That's just common sense. Make sure your tools are sharp so you don't have to expend as much energy making them work. Again, I was cutting down some trees in the backyard when we lived at Wake Forest, and I borrowed a friend's chainsaw. I'll never use one. It makes a ton of noise. It wasn't working its way through the tree very well at all. I'm sitting there huffing and puffing after the third tree thinking, I might as well just use a handsaw. Gave it back to the guy. He sharpened it. Well, it start going through like a hot knife through butter. I think what he's saying here is wisdom at work is we're looking at the jobs ahead, and we're doing right assessment. You know, what's the downside? What's the cost? Do we have the expression, it may come back to bite you? We just want to make sure that we assess the risk and act accordingly. We want to assess our efficiency. Are we being efficient at work? Are we working with sharp tools if you're a carpenter? And then the last thing is about the snake charmer. Obviously, that's not a profession that people really get into much anymore. But the idea is make sure the snake is charmed before you handle it. So don't go rushing into business. Don't go rushing into work situations without thinking and without planning. So I think he's just giving us some helpful wisdom about how we can utilize our gifts better in the workplaces. So to what degree do you aspire to be wise at work? So if you're an employee, are you just showing up and doing your job? Are you just posting, doing what they ask you, nothing more, nothing less? I mean, can you not think, you know, plan Make sure, are there better ways of doing things? Just because they told you to do it this way, could you introduce? Could you think? In other words, you don't want to just assume, but you want to be thoughtful, you want to be efficient, you want to be planning. You don't want to waste time, you don't want to waste the resources of your employer. And if you're an employer, are you making sure that it's a good environment for your employees to work? This is just kind of good common sense. There's a certain there's a certain biblical ethic that ought to guide 
how we actually go and do our jobs. God has given us gifts. How are we using them to their best of their ability to serve those that we are seeking to serve, both employer or customer? And we want to recognize our limitations. You know, recognizing our limitations helps us to make right risk assessments and planning and not falling into situations where work can become harmful to us. So that's the second area. He looks at how do we handle authorities? How do we handle work? Now look at this area of speech in 12 to 15. He says, the words of the wise man, um, his mouth win his favor, but the lips of the fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? I think he's simply saying this, is there is wisdom in the way that we handle our words, right? The, the wise man speaks with graciousness. He has tempered words, measured words. He, he speaks in a way that is appropriate for whatever the occasion is in which he's speaking. The fool is different. Uh, the fool uh, speaks. You know, it says that he begins with, what he says is he begins with um, foolishness and he ends with evil madness. In other words, the, the fool doesn't dig himself out of a hole with his words. He puts himself deeper in a hole. He's speaking. He says, a fool multiplies words. He, he talks too much. He overtalks a situation. Uh, the conversation is dominated by him. He's either talking about himself or herself, or, or he's talking about the things that he loves. He says that, that, the, that the fool speaks about what no man knows and what no one can see will be after him. In other words, the foolish man tends to speak and wax eloquent on things that far outpace his knowledge. They want to display their superiority. And so they literally speak about things they don't know. You see young people do that. They read an article in a paper. It's an interesting factoid to them. And so they begin to tell everybody like they discovered it and wrote about it. You know, the fool quickly outdistances himself by the multiplication of words. So you speak thousands of words a day. You know, there is to be wisdom in speech. So to what degree do you aspire to be wise in your speech? Do you try to speak with graciousness? Do you try to measure your words? Do you try to look at a situation and discern what does this situation need in the way of words? How can I be charitable? How can I be encouraging? Often when you walk away from a conversation, ask yourself this question, how much did I just learn about that person? And if you don't know much, then it may indicate that you spoke too much. You know, none of us as adults would just jump. What do we do first? We always look before we jump. Well, wisdom would say, think before you speak. You know, think about, words have power. Uh, you know, you think in the book of James, which is really a New Testament book on wisdom, much like Ecclesiastes, and he says words, I mean, they can set a forest ablaze. Just a few words, a poorly ill-timed sentence. The tongue is like a rudder. I mean, it doesn't take much of a rudder size to change the direction of a massive sailing vessel. And so we really want to be mindful. Uh, this may be a place where you stop and you just say, how have I used my words in the context of my marriage or in the context of my parenting, in the context of my church community, in the context of my business environment? Are my words filled with sarcasm, criticism, kind of uncharitable comments? 
or are they looking to build people up? Are they looking to to strengthen the faith of others? Is it looking to encourage and compliment when you see things done well? A wise man is known, a wise woman is known by his or her words. Okay, the third area that he looks at is this area of, of kind of general responsibility of being a citizen. You see this in the last number of verses in the chapter, 16 to 20. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince's feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is a son of nobility and your prince's feast at the proper time. He says, Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens heart. Money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, don't curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for the bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. I, I think he's speaking just about general, general responsibilities of the citizen in a society. And I say that because he, he begins, woe to you, O land. He's speaking to the land. And he's saying, happy is the land. Well, he's saying, woe to the land who has a king who's young. He's young. He doesn't understand his responsibilities to govern. And what he wants to do is he likes the rights of being a king, but he doesn't want the responsibilities of being a king. And so he parties early in the day. Whereas the son of nobility has watched his father and mother lead in their roles. He sees the the diligence needed to govern a people. And so he understands responsibilities and he takes care of business before he feasts and before he has fun. And see the same thing with the man, the, the man in the roof of his house that leaks. The sloth, the man who doesn't like responsibility, he'll push it off and push it off and push it off and push it off. I don't mean to get men in trouble with their honey-do list here, but they'll keep pushing off these slow leaks. They don't seem to demand a lot, but eventually it'll ruin the whole house. So love for neighbor means you accept the responsibility of taking care of the personal property that you have. You take care of the house, you fix it up. It's not just a blessing for those in your home. It's a blessing for your neighbors. You cut the grass. You fix the house up. Otherwise, your house goes down in value. Everybody's house. The wise man takes care of the gifts that God has given to him. And he's not slothful about it. He stays on it. He stays after it. He, he sees it. This is a responsibility. The Lord has given me these talents. I want to utilize them. You see the same thing about the, the bread and the wine and money. I, I think what he's saying here is it's, it's speaking about the person who's not responsibly using the gifts that he has. Because we know in nine, chapter 9, verse 7, we're to eat and drink and we're to enjoy the, the wine that God gives to us and the jobs that we have. But we want to manage the excess. We don't want to see that life is comprised in these things, but we want to enjoy them. Again, there's responsibility with the gifts that we have. And then the last comment, we started with the king, and now we talk about the citizen who's speaking ill of the king. And and, and he has a responsibility to not speak ill. In other words, support, pray for the king, don't speak ill of him. This doesn't mean that we don't critically think through the policies and the platforms that they hold. And we may take exception and we may raise those things. But we can take issue with the policy without speaking ill of the person or the character. Now, I think we've all been guilty, depending upon who's in office and what party we align with. This is another area, I think, where wisdom would be displayed by our, our diligent use of the responsibilities that we have as being citizens. So what we have here in this passage is he gives us the value of wisdom and he holds it up. And he says, this is like gold that in this life under the sun, as we try to navigate through the unpredictability of this world, you need wisdom. But at the same time, you got to be careful because 
wisdom can be overlooked, it can be ignored, it can be despised, it can be forgotten. And you find yourself playing the fool. And then he gives us these areas with authorities, with work, with speech, with our general responsibilities as citizens. Those are areas in which wisdom can shine, both for the glory of God, but our own flourishing. So that's what he has for us. So it really leads us to the question of, well, do you need this wisdom or not? How do I get this wisdom? And I would say three things to you. I would say, number one, I think to get this wisdom, we have to recognize that we need it. We have to recognize we need the wisdom. So look back over your life. Go back one, three, five, ten years. How many decisions have you made without seeking wisdom that you wish you could replay? How many things did you say? How many, how many work environments have you gone through? How many things have you said against the authorities? What, other, what about the other general responsibility? What would you redo? And if you had someone in your life that could give you wisdom, or if you could mind the scriptures more, seeking the spirit of God more, would you not redo it? Can you not admit with me that we need this wisdom, that we are inadequate in and of ourselves? This is really the first step to becoming wise, is to recognize the foolishness of our ways. That's the first thing. The second thing is to grasp the counterintuitive nature of God's wisdom. So where is wisdom found? Well, it's found in God. It says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, he says in Psalm 111, verse 10. The, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So we come to God, but, but let's remember that God's wisdom is often counterintuitive. It, it, it's, there's an irony to it. Right. Many things that you choose to do because it seems right to you. It's intuitive to you. You just assume it's right or the culture says it's right. But I'm saying to you that the wisdom that leads to flourishing life is often counterintuitive. You see this in the parable of the you see this in the, in the parable of the wise poor man. Right. So, look, you have this contrast. You have this man. Presumably he's older. He's poor. As I said, it's mentioned twice. He's from a small town, a no-name town, and not many people in it. And, and yet he's wise. And here you have a king. He's known by a great king with a great army and great siege works, great power. And yet it's in the weakness of this wisdom that defeats the king. The weakness of the wisdom delivers the city. He was despised. He was forgotten. And yet he despised them. Now, in talking to Rachel, my daughter, about this, she was the first one that said to me, that sounds a lot like Jesus to me. Sometimes I hesitate trying to draw types of Christ from wisdom literature, but I think she really has a point. The point is simply this, that when you look at the nature of Christ and the gospel, you see in perfect display this counterintuitive wisdom of God. So you look at the birth of Christ. Humble, for sure. No home, just a cave or some stable. No entourage, just some animals. He was raised in a no-name town. He had peasant parents. His life was really un, not much to note about it. None of the gospel writers write a lot about it. It's kind of just this normal life. And then you have a ministry. And while he taught with authority... It wasn't well thought of by those in the powers and places of, of position and wisdom. You see, his death was quite ignoble by crucifixion. That's the way criminals died. 
And then you see his resurrection, the first attendance to it are women who are considered of little value. So you see, I think in bold relief, that the core of God's plan, the gospel, is marked by weakness and by humility and by quietness, and yet it delivers. This is a counterintuitive nature of God, that, that he would take a son, the one that saves us from our sins, bears our shame, and, and takes upon himself our guilt to save, and it's given to this Jesus. What were the people looking for? Well, the intuitive leader would be, hey, let's look for a king, let's look for nobility, let's look for strength, let's look for power to overthrow the Rome, overthrow the Romans, and yet comes in this quiet, humble carpenter, this one that has no real name to him, and yet he delivers a people. So you see the counterintuitive nature of God. It's foolishness to man, but it's wisdom to God. The irony of it all, right? That our lives are saved by losing it. That victory is won by being defeated. You know, the the great one is the servant, You know, the rich one is the one that gives it all away. That's the paradoxical nature of Scripture. So first, recognize your need. And then secondly, grasp the reality that the wisdom of God is counterintuitive to the way you naturally think. And then thirdly, humble yourselves to seek this wisdom from God. You know, Jesus says in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The entrance into God's kingdom is through the humility of us recognizing that we need help. The proud, or we would say the foolish, don't think they need help. They just need more opportunities. They need more resources. They need more education. If you just give me enough of a runway, I can get going, I can fly, and they never fly. No, it's, it's the one who humbles himself. To say that you're poor of spirit isn't speaking about wealth. It's speaking about my person, that I have a poverty of goodness. What faith means is I come to God with empty hands and I say, God, I I need your wisdom. First, I need to be saved from my own foolishness. I need to repent of my sins and I need to, to confess that, yes, I need a Savior. I need a humble, quiet Savior, just like Jesus who displays the wisdom of God in its, in its inverted form. And, and, and I repent of my sins and I follow him. And then I begin to seek God for wisdom and to walk in that same kind of paradoxical nature of wisdom. Like a child, I come humble. To see this, to see the wisdom of God, you almost have to stand on your head. And, and you know, nobody stands on their heads anymore. Only little kids do because you look like a fool when you're on your head. But it's standing on your head. It's inverting yourself that you begin to see, wow, the wisdom of God is in humility and meekness and charity and trust in the power of God, even in the midst of evil rulers or authorities or whatever struggle you're going or in the unpredictability of our world. The world is unpredictable and it's changing at a rapid pace. We don't have to fear. We can react with calmness and meekness because we know the one who governs it all. So join with me in in seeking God for this wisdom, in humility, grasping the counterintuitive nature of God, recognizing that it's in following the steps of Christ that we will walk through the changeability of this world well. Would you pray with me? Father, I do thank you and praise you that we can appeal to you in our time of grace and need, and you'll give wisdom. You say in your word, if we lack wisdom, you'll give it to us without reproach. We just ask without doubting. 
You don't want us tossed to and fro. No, we want to come even now together to you to give us wisdom, to help us understand the counterintuitive, the paradoxical nature, that it's when we're weak that we're strong. It's that when we lay down our lives that we enjoy life. Father, help us as a church, even though separated just for a time. Father, spiritually bring us together around this. Give us the wisdom that we need to walk in a way that we might flourish and display your glory and your honor. And may we find our deepest joy in that. Thank you for this word, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.